0: You know, I was, I was thinking this week, and I wonder if any of you fellas have had, a, had an experience like this, maybe you, some of you can relate, where like every once in a while, maybe, I don't know, a few times a year, I realize about halfway through the day that my wife is really, really upset with me, and, 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 I, and I, have no, I have no idea why, right? Have you guys, any, any fellas, any witnesses out there? Okay, uh, and it can be kind of scary, right, guys? And now, it, it, if you know my wife, you know she's, she's not shy about keeping me in line. Uh, but but she, she really is generally a pretty kind, e- easygoing person. So when she gets that heated, uh, it, it's unusual. Uh, and especially when I have no clue what I've done to cause the situation, where the, the only thing that I can do uh, is go find out as quickly as I can what it is that I did and say I'm sorry. Or, or in some cases, just go straight to the sorry, and then worry later about what it was that caused it. But, but anyway, hi, honey. But, but anyway, my point is, when you know someone who is normally patient, and and gracious, and eager to show love and tenderness, uh, and that person then seems off the charts angry, you better pay attention, right? And if that's true when it comes to your wife or or your husband or your friend, uh, how much more important and urgent is the situation when the unusually angry person is Jesus? And we're going to look at that today as we come to this week's scripture text in Psalm 69. For those of you that are just with us for the first time, we're doing an expository look through the Psalms and we're just taking them one at a time, beginning with number one and we're up to 69 today. Uh, and it's a psalm that really is a virtual smorgasbord of Messianic passages. It's like, uh, it's like the golden corral of Messianic psalms, okay? <laughs> Be- because there's really too many for just one sermon. And so we're only going to look at just a very small portion of it, just verses 1 through 9. Uh, but since we've read all the rest of them in their entirety, I encourage you to go home and read the rest. Uh, and we're going to see... Uh, in this psalm a link to the life of our lord and so if you have your bibles with you as i hope you do uh, if you join me in psalm 69 beginning in verse 1 and it's superscribed to the choir master according to lilies which is a, a tune of david and he writes save me O god for the waters have come up to my neck i sink in deep mire where there is no foothold i have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More than the number of hairs on my head are those that hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly, the wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And, uh, you know, we've we've seen, if you've been listening to the series or you've been here through it uh, since we started uh, this book of Psalms, that this collection of inspired songs that the people of Israel used in the worship of God uh, also prophetically foretells the coming of the Messiah and predicts events that would be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Uh, There's 25 of them in total, 25 uh, different Messianic Psalms, one out of every six, that include at least one messianic prophecy and as i said uh, today is no exception as it starts out speaking of david initially but ultimately points to the life of our lord jesus and more specifically to a story in the gospel of john chapter 2 and that's the story of jesus cleansing the temple and so i'm going to read just a brief portion of that to you uh, if you're following along it's john chapter 2 beginning in verse 13 John tells us it was time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. Uh, In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple. Uh, He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and turned over their tables and then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And when his disciples remembered this prophecy from Scripture, they remembered the line from Psalm 69 we just read, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If, if God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. And all right, Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. What? They exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Does that story surprise you a little bit if you've never heard it before or read it before? So we don't really imagine Jesus as the lash out in anger type of guy, do we? Uh, we don't like to, to think of God as being angry, uh, and most people don't. In fact, I think uh, if you were to poll the general population uh, as far as why they don't go to church, I think you'd find it's because many people have been beaten up by the message that uh, God is an angry God who's just waiting to smite everyone for their sins. Uh, and we don't really like that idea of God. We we prefer The idea of the god of grace and god of love and god of forgiveness and and the truth really is that the church throughout history has tended to swing kind of from one extreme to the other uh, in presenting that idea and it's really a shame because the truth is there's a balance to be had in fact that's one of the things that i really love about our reformed congregational faith uh, and that is our theology that understands that god is on both sides of the equation that God works through law and through gospel, and that he works through human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And we also can celebrate both his attributes of righteous judgment and relentless love. But, you know, in today's world, the the doctrine of the wrath of God has kind of fallen on hard times. Because any concept of God's wrath is too upsetting to our modern sensibilities, it's too disconcerting and too intolerant, And we kind of live in a day where we've set ourselves up as the judge and put God's character on trial. That's kind of a switch, isn't it? But you know, it's almost the same thing that Satan did in the garden when he hinted to Adam and Eve that God might be holding out on them a little bit by restricting their access to the tree of knowledge. And so that means that now more than ever, right thinking is needed about the doctrine of God's righteous anger. And what it really means to us today because, you know, getting angry isn't always a bad thing. It's what you do with that anger that makes it wrong. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.26, be angry but do not sin. Because right? anger is what psychologists call like a secondary emotion. It's like physical pain. You know, we've talked about this before. Pain can be a good thing. Uh, it alerts us to the fact that there's an injury uh, or that there's something not right with our body. Uh, and anger is that same kind of thing. It's an internal alarm that tells us something's not quite right. Uh, It's a sign that someone or something that we value and care about has been violated. Uh, And I know all your parents and grandparents have that same kind of sensor for your kids, right? I mean, especially when you mess with someone's kid, watch how quickly mama bear shows up, (laughs) right? But what we want to look at today is why did Jesus get so angry when he came into the temple in today's scripture? And, And I want to just give you a Uh, Just a brief background for a minute on the temple, if you don't remember. Uh, John told us in that reading, remember, it's the Feast of the Passover at hand. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem, uh, goes into the temple to worship. And remember, uh, the temple was designed to be a place that represented the presence of God. Uh, It contained the Holy of Holies, the the place where only the high priest could enter just once a year. Uh, And then it had courtyards around it. It had separate courtyards for Jewish men and for Gentile believers another courtyard for the Israelite women. But it was a place of holiness and purity. Because you see, when God knew that we as limited, finite human beings needed something solid to hold on to in order to grasp the idea of an infinite God, and the temple was that place. It was holy ground. It was the place where uh, people were supposed to come and set their eyes on God and to put their priorities in order. And to realize, as we said last week, that they were blessed so that they could be a blessing to others. But you know, when Jesus shows up, when Jesus entered the temple, he found people selling merchandise. They're selling cows and and sheep and, and pigeons. And there were tables with money changers and chaos everywhere. Now, of course, just like every heresy and error that comes into the church, it doesn't just happen overnight. Because as we've said so many times in Bible study, uh, we'd kind of be prepared for a frontal attack on the church, right? We can spot that from a mile away from our culture. But what trips up God's people every time are the subtle things that creep in bit by bit, little by little, generation by generation. As you see, originally, the idea of providing these animals locally for the Passover sacrifice was a good idea. Uh, think about it. If you live far away, you've got to travel a long distance to reach Jerusalem in time for the festival it's much more convenient to buy what you need when you get there, right? Uh, it was also a great service for people whose animals could well have died or, or maybe been stolen on the way. Uh, in the same way, when it comes to the, the money changers, the temple officers needed to collect funds that God's people were commanded to tithe, uh, and they rightly wanted to have pure gold and pure silver, so they were careful to regulate the currency that they accepted, just like... Any merchant today is going to check out that $20 bill that you hand him at the store to see if it's real, right? But slowly, all of these things kind of evolved or or devolved, I guess I should say, because little by little, bit by bit, the animal market moved from its place across from the temple and right into the temple itself. Because, hey, that's more convenient, right? Uh, And then very slowly, the natural laws of supply and demand went from expecting a healthy profit to extracting exorbitant extortion until one first century pilgrim uh, on a trip to the temple in jesus day wrote that the doves for sale inside the temple the ones approved by the priest for sacrifice sold for 50 times more than they could be had at any local village market and and don't forget you needed the right kind of money to buy them right ordinary money wouldn't do especially if it had any graven image on it right imprinted on the front Uh, But in the interest of public service, the money changers were only too happy to exchange your dirty worldly coins for their sanctified ones. It would just cost you a little bit. Uh, But also be careful that you had the exact right change uh, because it would only cost you a service fee of 6% if you didn't need any change back. Because if you did, you have to have that amount reduced by an extra 6% for the convenience. That's why Jesus said in Matthew's account of this event, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. You see, Jesus wasn't angry because these guys were practicing capitalism. Capitalism was invented in the Bible. Uh, Jesus was angry because the sellers of animals were selling dishonestly. And the money changers were charging interest dishonestly, knowing that the people had nowhere else to go to get what they needed, to get what the law required, to get what God required pretty clever system right those religious leaders had it all figured out but you know beyond the racketeering aspect what they were actually doing was committing idolatry in the temple of the living god that's why paul wrote in colossians 3 5 he he warned christian people to put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passions evil desires and covetousness which is idolatry so Paul tells his readers they were to to put away these earthly sinful behaviors in which they once lived uh, and that last one he mentioned was covetousness now that's another word you don't hear too often anymore right but we can definitely see it in action covetousness is when uh, it's desiring something that another person has believing that you deserve it more it's like on a on a kind of a micro scale if I were to Uh, be daydreaming and say you know I really should have Bill Gates money because I could use it a whole lot better than he does right but you know on a larger scale we see it played out uh, when any social group that you want to name goes from rightly expecting equal opportunities in this world to demanding equal outcomes regardless of the effort they put in that's covetousness Uh, Because covetousness is more than greed which says I deserve this. Covetousness goes beyond and says I deserve this more than you. Okay? Because don't forget money and possessions in themselves aren't evil. Uh, If they're obtained illegally though and if they consume all of our thoughts and actions it's then that they become an idol. That they take the place uh, in the human heart that's reserved for God alone and they become an idol to worship instead of God. Because... They replace God as our supreme delight with perishable, finite, earthly, material things. And when we put those things, specifically other people's things, in the place of God, then those things become more dear to us than a relationship with the Father. And that's what's happening in this story in the temple. The animal sellers and the money changers had a legitimate role to play in helping the people to worship, but they perverted it with materialism and avarice and robbery and corruption they weren't giving the people the animals or the change that their money was worth, and so they were stealing from them and breaking at least three of God's direct commandments right on his doorstep. So they're desecrating the temple. They're profaning the name of God and his rightful worship, and that's why Jesus was angry. Now, some folks reading this story may say, well, Pastor, Jesus might have had a right to be angry, but come on, did he need to react so severely? Right? Did he need to throw over the tables did he need to chase people out with a whip drive the animals out let the birds free and you know the answer is yes for a couple of reasons Jesus was right to act in anger the way he did because Jesus was defending the holiness the hallowedness the of God's name Jesus was making it clear that the temple was to be kept holy and set apart for God alone and clean from the sins that we allow to creep in around us I think I've mentioned this to you guys before uh, if you guys know who R.C. Sproul is, in his book, The Holiness of God, he said, uh, sins like we're describing are cosmic treason. It's a treason against a perfectly pure sovereign and an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. The one who has given us life itself, and by it we're saying, God, my judgment is better than yours, and your authority doesn't apply to me. And my wants are beyond your jurisdiction. That's what we're saying when we say no to God. Uh, And in today's text, we see Jesus zealously or or jealously really protecting the Father's honor. And when the disciples saw all of those things going on, they saw the tables being flipped and the coins scattered and the flocks of birds released and the tradesmen scrambled to gather everything up. They remembered what David had prophesied in our psalm for today in 69.9 when he said, zeal for your house will consume me. and zeal is you know it's that intense enthusiasm it's it's devotion It's being totally committed It's being sold out It's totally obsessed with something and jesus was intensely devoted to the temple in that way and to its holiness he was totally committed to the pure worship of god uh, and he was completely sold out and wholeheartedly devoted to his father and the holiness of his name And, and the point of telling you all of that Uh, is for us today, we need to ask ourselves, what are you and I zealous about? Uh, For what or for whom would you uh, cross an ocean or or climb a mountain or bypass a desert? What would you risk everything you have and everything you are for? Uh, Is there anyone or anything that you feel like that about? What are you zealous about? What would you be willing to make a scene over? Who would you be willing to offend for the honor of God? You know, I can tell you honestly, I've seen more people get upset over uh, somebody slamming their favorite uh, sports team than they would ever get about someone taking the name of Christ as a curse word, right? But Jesus was zealous to preserve and draw attention to the holiness of the Father's name. And brothers and sisters, we've been called to do the same thing. Uh, Not by judging other people, not by uh, going around thumping people over the heads with our Bibles, not by pretending that we're better than anybody else is, but just by a pure love of christ in his word and you know if we pull all these things together and you know when you think what do we make of all of this uh and the talk of jesus anger there's plenty i i think uh it kind of reminded me of what civil rights activists said uh in the early 20th century that lack of anger is a failure of nerve when it leads to apathy right? lack of anger is a failure of nerve when it leads to apathy And he said it also in the words of Edmund Burke, For evil to succeed, all that is needed is for good men to do nothing. But, you know, I think he could have said all that was needed was for good men not to get angry. And, you know, I'm not talking about going out and becoming as obnoxious as we possibly can be. But, you know, we need to reclaim our Christian heritage and we need to do it quickly. And for us, that means uh, we need to shake off the cultural stereotype that Christians are just nice little doormats and harmless pushovers without the courage to stand up against real evil in this world the evils of, of, of abortion and homosexual marriage and all of these things that are crowding in on us and teach the unequivocal truth with the authority or to speak the truth of God's word in the face of political correctness because the honor of God's house is at stake and I don't just mean these four walls I mean before the leaders in this watching world remember that's why uh, we read in John Uh, the same thing was happening with the jewish leaders they demanded of jesus what are you doing if god gave you authority to do this show us a miraculous sign to prove it and jesus said all right destroy this temple and in three days i'll raise it up again they said what it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days but when jesus said this temple he meant his own body And, and you see what's happening there in that scripture jesus is saying i am the temple i'm the place where god meets creation i'm the place where god is with us in fact that's why john who wrote this started out his whole gospel by saying the word became flesh and tabernacled with us it dwelt with us he pitched his tent right here with us see the presence of god isn't about this building it's not about the church's power or, or money or success the presence of god with us is in the fact that jesus emptied himself of all of those things and became a servant and he let himself be ridiculed and abused and misunderstood and ultimately crucified so that we might have life uh, so that God by his spirit could be with us as we go into the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus and as the church here is the body of Christ uh, we're called to love the world the way God loved the world we're called to love the things that God loves but we're also called to hate the things that God hates And we're called to get mad when people are hurt, and when people are abused, and when the poor and the outcast are overlooked, because those are the folks for whom Christ died. And all of those things, all of those things are accomplished in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to kind of pull this together and close with just a a short little quote that I've shared with you before uh, from Scottish theologian James Stewart and I know I've read it to you before, but I never get tired of reading it myself, and I hope you don't get tired of hearing it, uh, because I think it really captures the heart of this message. Uh, And Stuart wrote of our Lord, he said, Jesus was the meekest and lowliest of all of the sons of men, and yet he spoke of coming in the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable, that children loved to play with him little ones nestled in his arms his presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine and no one was half so compassionate to sinners yet no one ever spoke such red hot scorching words about sin a bruised reed he would not break his whole life was love and yet on one occasion he demanded of the pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell He was a dreamer of dreams, seer of visions, and yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beat. He was a servant of God washing the disciples' feet, and yet masterfully he strode into the temple and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire that they saw in his eyes. He saved others, and yet at the last he himself, he did not save. And Stuart closes that writing by saying, there's nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confront us in the Gospels. And it's the mystery of Jesus, the mystery of divine personality, that personality, that divine presence with all that it means available to us here as a visual extension of the body of Christ where all the common means of grace are available in the Holy Scriptures, the administration of the sacraments, the preaching of the Word, where all of those things are lifted up with a consuming zeal for God's house and a flaming passion for His glory. Amen?